You are listening to the Talking Tough Podcast, the world's toughest men and women at their most vulnerable. Their stories of triumph, their falls from grace, and their climb back to the top, to life. This is Rick Bassman here for Talking Tough on the Podcast One Network. Hello and welcome to Talking Tough. Yes, this is the producer JP John Paz, and usually I'm on the quote unquote other side of the glass. But for today's episode of Rick Bassman's Talking Tough, I'm just going to do a brief little intro and roll you into an interview that we did, a part of the two man power trip with Rick, a few months ago before launching the Talking Tough podcast. Now we're going to flip the script, and I'm going to be doing the interviewing of him while he is currently in. Los Angeles, California, recording a big show called Be Good, which will be available on Perspect TV after the recording is done, and, and we'll have all the plugs and everything for you after this, and we'll get you more information regarding that. But it was a big show called Be Good, involving Sting, The Incredible Hulk, Lou Ferrigno, The Mountain from Game of Thrones, Benny the Jet, who's a karate legend, Boss Rutin, Butterbean, Dion Joseph, Rusty Coons, and so many others. Just a huge show that he was a part of. So we weren't able to record the normal episode of Talking Tough this week. So what we're going to do, like I said, is just flip the script, and I'm going to interview Rick, and we're going to play an interview we did with him, part of the two-man power trip, probably about three months ago or so. So please, enjoy. All right. Award winner, an MMA pioneer, an entrepreneur, a producer, an agent, an author, former UPW lightweight world champion. He is, of course, the legendary Rick Bassman. Rick, welcome to the two-man right. power trip of wrestling. Thank you, Bass. A good intro. You know you missed, don't you? What you the missed, hell did I miss? You missed the best-looking guy in this room, and I happen to be here alone right now. But both my dogs, <laughs> actually, they're all better looking than I am. I was wrong about that, too. That's all right. How you doing, man? I am doing very good, and of course, today, got to be talking about something that will be very soon out to the public, released, uh, released very, very soon, of course, that is Talking Tough, your new podcast. Tell us all about it. Well, I'm going to, but am I allowed to say who the producers are of my podcast? Yes, of course, of course. All right, this is kind of weird. I have to bring it up because, of course, the two-man power trip, of which you are one of the two men, are my producers. And I tell you what's tripping me out already, John. I sound like, I, sorry, I feel like I'm talking to a different guy on the phone because usually when you have your producer hat on, not usually, always, you're so sedate and business-like and then you do the intro and i'm like oh my god she sounds like a uh, a big-time podcast host so that was kind of cool yeah you got to change it up a little bit you got to be serious and then when you're on the air you know you got to amp it up a little bit you gotta you gotta turn it up yeah you got that going on man i, I gotta apologize in advance you probably told my my voice is shot um I was away at a intensive retreat for the weekend called, uh, was it the uh, Mankind Project's New Warrior Initiation, and uh, my voice is shot. I'll do my best to get through this, and I know I'll have some good stuff to talk about. Nice, and definitely want to ask you about that in a second, but let's talk about Talking Tough. What's going on with Talking Tough? I know, right, you know, so I know a lot about to... it, but tell, tell the audience, tell the fans. Yeah, I'm, I'm glad, glad to. Talking Tough, my podcast debuts on the 15th. That's coming right up this weekend. Uh, Talking Tough is about 
It profiles the world's toughest men and women and what we call the most vulnerable. And, you know, it's, it's the stories, the fun stories, the, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll stories, if you will, about, you know, what made these people who, what made these people who others perceive they are. Uh, but the, the flip side of it is these types of people, I'll give a couple names real quickly that, um, that your audience for sure will recognize. Uh, Ken Shamrock. Um, Mark Coleman, perhaps, Mark Kurt, Kurt Angle, certainly. Uh, you know, guys that are perceived to be some of the toughest guys in the world, and I'm not saying they're not, because um, they, they in many ways are, but what we get into beyond the stories of, of what made, uh, you know, Ken Shamrock the world's most dangerous man, for instance, is we go into all the challenges he's faced in his lifetime. Um, you know, his spectacular fall from grace and crash to the bottom and what it was like there and, and how he got to the bottom and, and how he fought his way out of it and what he learned on the on the way back up. Uh, so that's what Talking Tough is about. Uh, and it's, uh, you know, there, there are some pro wrestlers on there. There are some uh, big-day mixed martial artists, but it's all kinds of interesting people from all corners of the earth. Uh, you know, uh, Emmanuel Jal, a child soldier from the Sudan, who, um, who watched his mother and sister raped to death before his eyes and was forced into being a child soldier and, and forcibly addicted to drugs. Um, a gentleman named Azim Kamisa on with Tony Hicks. This is the father of a murdered son, and Tony is the murderer who Azim got out of prison after 30 years and invited him to join him in his nonprofit foundation to combat youth violence. Uh, Erna DeVries, who's an Auschwitz Holocaust survivor. So it, it runs again, man, the people who have seen the absolute worst of life and have come back out the other side and not, not, only, not only doing good themselves, but doing good for others by you know, imparting messages of, of forgiveness, of peace, of calm, um, of what it takes to be a, a you know, quote-unquote real man or real woman. Uh, I and guess that's what it's about, man. And it's so interesting because you do go through the gamut of different guys. I mean, obviously you mentioned Angle and Shamrock and MMA and wrestling fans, and stuff, but, I mean, the other guys are just as interesting, if not more interesting, than those guys, right? I think without question. I mean, you know, I I grew up being a fan of two things, man, of comic books and of pro wrestling. So I will I will be a fan of pro wrestling and a business person in pro wrestling for my entire life. But there, as we all know, is a lot more to, to life than that. And and these people, in their own way, are are, are superheroes. The other people, or supervillains, even. Here's two more quick examples. Um, and this will really show the, the yin and yang of what the podcast looks like, at least. Although at heart, the following two I'm going to mention, I think, are very similar. Um, one guy's name is Dion Joseph, and he is this jacked out of his gourd black guy who looks like Ahmed Johnson in his prime. Dion is known as the Angel of Skid Row in Los Angeles. He's a sergeant on the LAPD, and he is like the benevolent police officer who patrols Skid Row by himself and is loved by everybody down there, except for the gang members who pretty much run things. Uh, and he's a very devout guy as well. And then we interviewed Rusty Coons. Rusty is very likely the highest-ranking Hells Angel in the world currently. And another guy who, who looks like he's, he's ready for the ring, you know, 6'6", 300 pounds. Uh, he's a regular in Sons of Anarchy. Definitely looks apart. So, you know, head guy from the LAPD Skid Row unit, head guy from the Hells Angels. So it's, it's all types. And these people have fascinating, fascinating stories. It's been a lot of fun so far. Um, 
I'm learning lessons constantly doing this. And, uh, you know, what I found, and you know, no one's heard it yet, really, other than you, myself, and Chad, your, your co-producer, but um, I tell you, it's, it's helping me already. Uh, my life these days is a study about doing my best to be better and better as a human being all the time, and getting to talk with these folks just really reinforces everything that, uh, that I want to be in life, so it's been really cool so far. Awesome, and you can't forget the greatest. American Gladiator of all time, Malibu. We can't forget him either. <laughs> you know, that that's probably my favorite interview so far for a very bizarre reason. You know, Darren McBee, Malibu, an old, old friend of mine. He's probably the best. No, I, I don't know if you would agree or not, John, but I think probably the most recognizable of all the American Gladiators ever. Yes, um, yep. And, you know, he's in, he's in Mortal Kombat and Curb Your Enthusiasm and stuff like that. He's best known as Malibu. Um, and this guy, I mean, talk about living the epitome of the sex, drugs, and rock and roll lifestyle. Really came out the other side through some just horrific tragedy in his life, which we go into in detail. And that's what's been really cool also. I've been really fortunate with the guests so far. And in, in that we talk with guys like Mark Kerr, and, and, you, and you know that. Uh, the Rock, Dwayne Johnson, is making a movie on Mark's life right now, and Dwayne is playing Mark. Mark was, uh, for, for those of your fans who don't follow MMA, Mark was the smashing machine from the famous HBO documentary who, who went, had his own crazy descent into hell, and uh, Dwayne Johnson's playing him now uh, in a movie. But what, what's been really good is all of these guys so far, like Malibu, like Mark Kerr, like the others we've mentioned and others we haven't, have been really fortunate, I think, getting them to open up. So it goes it goes way beyond Mark Kerr just talking about his fights when he was UFC heavyweight champion or Kurt Angle talking about his favorite matches. I mean, we do that. We, we get into it for two reasons. One, we know the listeners want to hear some of that. And two, I can't help it because I'm a fan, so i got to ask some stuff like that. But more, it's just getting into their, their heart and their soul. And, you know, I, it's hard for me to step back and say, wow, that was great because I'm doing the interview. But... It seems to me like it's gone pretty darn well so far. Valibu was my favorite interview because we did it on Valentine's Day, and he and I are simultaneously going through these hellish breakups with our girlfriends, or ex-girlfriends, I would say. And we uh, – I forget the title of the episode. It's like 20 words long, but it's something like um, – uh, seeming uh, or, or guys who appear to be tough pouring out their broken hearts on Valentine's Day, but we still love women anyways episode, something like that. And uh, we got into <laughs> what it's like to be shredded by a woman and really examine that and not bash them, you know, talk about why, why, we, why what happened happened in our humble opinions and and we held them up and held all women up to a high standard. Not a high standard, I should say a high ideal, because we love them. But we talked about what guys go through, and even tough guys go through, when uh, they get their hearts broken. So that might sound a little boring to people logging on to two-man power trip to hear wrestling stories, but I don't know. I thought it was pretty cool. Yeah, you got to change it up a little bit. Spice it up, get some good, interesting stuff. And it is interesting to hear something like that from him, who is a you know, massive Massive man talking about heartbreak and you know, stuff like that. It's really interesting. Yeah, no kidding. Who did the things that he did in his life, man. Um, I can imagine the female numbers he put up on the board. Oh, my, I should have asked him. He would have told us. Um, but now he's, uh, you know, he's, he's an ordained minister now and a drug and alcohol rehabilitation counselor. And 
but still the same old fun guy I've known for 25 years at the same time. Just doesn't have some of the same behaviors, that's all. So in talking about you personally, Rick Bassman, and kind of going through your career, how many people to you, when they either interview, talk to you, whatever, they find your Rick Bassman, they bring up Sting or the Ultimate Warrior? What do you say, 99%? Oh, God. If, if it's even remotely wrestling-related, then the answer would be 100%, of course. Yeah, it's um, Sting and Warrior, and then usually right after that, Cena, Miz, and then, you know, Victoria, Nathan Jones, and a whole lot of others. But Warrior and Sting Always, man. So if you if you feel you must ask a warrior and or sting question, feel free, and I will give you the answer if I have it. I always feel like I have to. You know, I, I got to be a part right, of that. that man, go right ahead. I got to be a part of that 100. percent 100 percent of the people. I got you know I got to get in there. So when you see these guys, right, these two massive just chunks of clay, you have no idea. They just look like they got some charisma. They have some look to them. What's your thought process like? Man, I can make money off these two. These two have it. I mean, there was obviously two other guys that didn't quite make it and didn't have it. But what were your thoughts on those two? Like, man, look at these two chunks of clay. I can mold them, and they're going to make it. Okay, well, I, I'm gonna, that, that's a question that's got several parts to it. So I'm going to do my best to uh, – to get through that in an intelligent and orderly fashion. Um, first of all, when I started Sting and Warrior, at the time, Steve Borden and Jim Helwig, of course, the maniac, um, as we all know, for, legally changed his name to Warrior later. Um, <laughs> it was part of a concept group I was putting together called Team America, which we later changed to Power Team USA, and that's the name that's known in the wrestling world. And I don't know what I was thinking. I, I went into the business at that point having no clue about the business. And here's how... Here's how this group came came to pass. I had my first business at that time. I had, had made this little mini rock and roll empire out of Santa Barbara, where I was promoting concerts, owned two nightclubs, had a security guard company, a modeling agency. I was doing really, really well. And the wrestling bug bit me again. And I started, I was a fan in the 70s, and I started to watch again in the mid-80s with Hulkamania. Became a fan again, and then right away, and this will probably sound very blasphemous, it is now, but I'll say it. I looked at the guys that were the, you know, quote-unquote American heroes at the time. Hulk Hogan, Dusty Rhodes, Wyndham and Rotunda was the American Express. Because if you remember, it was all about America versus uh, versus the world at that point with the Iron Sheik and Nikolai Volkov and whatnot. And here's the blasphemous part. I looked at these guys, Hulk, Wyndham, Rotundo, Dusty, and I'm like, these aren't very good representations of American heroes. And I said that because I grew up, you know, with Captain America and Superman, and I thought the guys should have better physiques. I thought they should be more articulate. I thought they should be better looking. Um, but this is me having no clue how the business worked. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to go out and find four guys, um, multi-ethnic, and put them in red, white, and blue, and call them Team America, or later Power Team USA, and insert them into the world of pro wrestling where they'll be the biggest stars of all time. I was so clueless, John. I had no idea you couldn't take four absolutely green guys and just get them a push to the top. I didn't know the word push. I knew nothing, man. So I went out, found four guys, and, and the, the order was um, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, all-American boy, um, American Indian, Italian-American, and a black guy. And the reason no... Uh, no Asian or no Latino, this will sound funny to say it, they, weren't, they didn't grow that big back in those days. So ultimately, no play, no attempt on words there, uh, Ultimate Warrior was my Indian, Jim Helwig, and Steve Borden was my blonde-haired, blue-eyed, all-American boy. Um, now, my thoughts never, and as far as making money, I want to answer that. 
John Cena has given me a lot of shit over the years in the media or whatnot about being exploitative or whatever he wants to call it. And the thing is, he has a much, much bigger forum than I do, so more people are going to listen to him, of course. Um, making money off of a guy, it, it sound, it's, it's as bad as it sounds. It sounds exploitative. Um, add to that the fact that I'm a promoter and I'm Jewish, so I must really be a scumbag looking to exploit guys to make money, quote-unquote, off of them. The guys who really know me, and I can give you a long, long line of guys like that, um, Road Dog, uh, Nova, uh, Roddy Piper when he was alive was one of, the, one of my best friends, Diamond Dallas Page now to this day still one of my best friends, um, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, you know, and again, the list goes on and on, Bruce Pritchard, these people know that I love people and got into the business because I love the business. I wanted to make money, sure, but I wanted to do well for other people. I'll say this, and you'll think it's bullshit or not, but I'll stand by it. Nothing makes me happier than to see other people happy and get a chance to contribute to that. Now, did I make money, quote-unquote, off some guys? Yeah. And I want to explain a little bit about that. And let's use my good, good buddy Jim Cornette as, a, as an example. Do you know Jim? Yes, very well. Is he your good, good buddy, too? Uh, I would have to say we are very, very friendly. I probably talked to him last week over the phone, so pretty friendly. I wouldn't say great friends or anything, but uh, I would say friendly. But you can say whatever you want. No, that's that's great. That's good to hear. Tell Jim if you talk with him that I said to kindly fuck off and that I love him. <laughs> um, w- w- one of these days, I really would like the opportunity to, to sit down and talk with him. I don't think he's a big enough man to ever take me up on an invitation. God knows I tried for years. Um Jim was really pissed at me back in the day. When I had UPW, we were a development ter- territory for WWF at the time before they became WWE and later for WWE. So I had two different development periods with them. And a lot of the guys went on to OVW. And what, what Jim found out when they got there is these guys were under contract to me for management. Now, at the time, when I, when I got into the business the second time after the power team experiment blew up in the, in the mid-'80s, I got back in in the late uh, '90s, and I formed a company called Ultimate Management Group with Barry Bloom and Michael Braverman, who at the time managed guys. They were the first legit managers in pro wrestling, not the show managers like Brother Love and, and Cornette and you know Albano and the rest, but they were business managers for several guys like Jesse Ventura, um, I think they still manage Triple H, if you can believe that. Um, we formed a management company, and the goal was for me to bring a lot of guys into a school, into a promotion, UPW, look for the guys that were the real gems, and then bring them to either WWF or WCW, ECW, thirdly, and negotiate their deals. Now, to do what I did back then, John, required a hell of an investment. Um, I rented a building, I bought rings, I paid for insurance. I think I was probably the only promoter school in the country that actually had insurance at that time. Uh, I had a photographer there all the time. We were doing the best promotional materials in the business by far, and doing them for all the guys, so on and so forth. Negotiating commercial appearances, because we were LA-based. We did a lot of stuff for TV movies back in the day. And it was working my ass off for these guys and girls, which I was happy to do. I'm not complaining. And there was a big investment that came with that. And for some reason, the, the JCs, I'm not talking about Jesus Christ, I'm talking about hmm. Jim Cornette and John Cena, so I'll, I'll put the JCs together in the same breath, 
they had a big problem with the fact that a guy like me or me would do what I did and then charge a commission of 10%. So that's where, that's where and why Jim Cornette and John Cena have, have bashed me forever. And, you know, these days it's accepted to have agents and managers. Everybody does. John, I think, is represented by, um, by ICM. Uh, Vince is represented by WOV, William Morris. So now it's accepted. Back then it wasn't. Um, but everyone knows, you know, the value of a good agent is, is twofold. One, the agent or manager, which I call myself, does so much work for the client that the client either would be way too busy to do themselves or just wouldn't have a, remotely a clue of how to do it. The second part is you negotiate a deal for that client, theoretically, as, as someone who is good at what they do, which I, which I very much became. I will put myself over in that regard. I became very good at representing talent. In theory, I'm going to do the deal the way it should be done. So if the talent goes out, I got John Cena $40,000 for a reality show called Manhunt back in the day when John didn't have $400 to his name. And I worked my ass off on that deal. And I remember closing it on my wedding anniversary while I was sitting in the parking lot of my car at the Irvine Spectrum. My wife, Gabrielle, was inside at a restaurant waiting for me for two hours. Talk about healing my wife. I, I had my uh, priorities a little mixed up back in those days. So I closed that deal for John. The initial offer, I think, was 15000 I eventually got it to forty. I remember calling John to let him know. And the first thing he said to me in a really snide way was, well, don't spend that whole $4,000 commission in one place now. And I'm thinking, holy shit, this guy has made $36,000. This guy doesn't have 400 bucks. If he had this offer come to him directly for fifteen grand, he probably would have jumped all over it. So the, the second part of being a good representative is to get the right price. So in a case like this, you know, and, and that second part is after they pay you your commission and come out with more money than they would have had they done the deal themselves. It's a John came out with thirty six grand instead of the fifteen he probably would have taken and I pocketed four. So, you know, if that's making money off somebody, then so be it. How was that for a freaking long answer for a short question? I love it. Love that answer. To be honest though, doesn't that sound somewhat fair? I mean, you made the deal, you got him more money. Doesn't that sound a bit fair? No, I, I, I think it does. But, you know, it's funny, man. When, when you're one of the boys, when you're one of the talent, you got a guy like John Cena. And John, you know, what I will say that's good about him is, dude, he is a hard, hard worker. That guy is dedicated. Um, he, he wasn't great at his craft when he started it, so I have to give him even more props. He became very good at it. We didn't have natural abilities. And, you know, he, he held up his end of the bargain to become a very, very successful and productive product. Um, so work ethic like second to none. Um, yeah, so does it, does, does it make sense? Uh, I kind of I lost my way here for a second. But, um, you know, with – help me out here, John. <laughs> Get me back on track. Where were we? I rarely do this. But go ahead. So, so you went from Sting and Warrior to Cena to Cornette and kind of went back to Cena. But let's go back to Warrior for a second because, you know, we're kind of making a joke. He was supposed to be like a Native American. He changed his name to Warrior. He's a little wacky. How come you and him didn't really gel well just in general, but you and Sting still gel well to this day? Yeah. Well, they're, they're okay. There's two parts to that. And here's the thing, man. It, it, as you know, in, you know, in interpersonal relationships, it, it's rarely all one-sided. So 
Warrior, Jim, and I both had a part in this. Um, my part was, part of my language, I didn't know what the fuck I was doing. So what I mean by that, I worked my ass off, it's just that the effort was misguided. And, you know, I moved Jim from Atlanta, you know, on my dime, and put them into a house that I was renting on my dime, and got great costuming, great photography, great promotional materials, all on my dime, and then packaged it all up and mailed it to every territory in the country. Isn't that funny? That's when territories still existed, and that's when he actually sent stuff by mail, because there was thing as email yet. And once again, my entire concept was ill-conceived, because I just did not know you couldn't bore green guys and put them in a territory. So that part was on me. Um, what happened was I had hired Red Bastien as their trainer, and Red, you know, behind my back, and Red and I later became friends before, before he passed. He used to come to my school, actually, and help out back in the day. Um, but Red went behind my back and smartened up Jim and said, hey, this is never going to work, but with your size and your look, and probably with Steve's, we could probably get you booked somewhere. And Jim said, okay, great. And Jim took the lead on it. He got a hold of Jarrett. And Jim went to Steve and said, you know, he could have handled it in a different way, man. And, and Steve told me this later. Um, he went to Steve staying and said, fuck Rick. He doesn't know what the fuck he's doing. I'm done with this. We're out of here. Let's go. So it, it was a combination of, of my ill-conceived plan to begin with and then the way Jim decided to uh, respond to it, which is what split us. So let, let's put 50% blame to both parties there. But you and Sting still remain very, very close, even to this day, right? I mean, you guys are still very tight and good friends. Well, I, I don't know if we say tight and good friends, but we talk and we're very, very friendly. We've had a lot of um, absolutely, a lot of religious discussions recently, of all things. Um, when, I, when I put uh, Power Team USA together, you know, again, it was all on my dime, including paying uh, rent, the trainer and the, and the rent on the place we did the training at. Now, this was 1985, so things cost a lot less back then. But the, the total price tag for, all, for everything I put into it was $12,800. And the reason I remember that is we, I had the guys sign an agreement that made them jointly and severally liable to pay me back. Jointly and severally meaning that if um, any one of them succeeded on their own, they'd be liable to pay the entire thing back. Otherwise, it'd be split proportionally. Well, years after uh, Jim went over on Hogan at Mania and Steve got the strap from Flair for the first time, Steve and I met at Jerry's Deli in uh, Studio City in California, and he handed me a check for $12,800. I didn't have to even ask. And, uh, wow. Yeah, nice. a, that's a huge gesture, man. And I thought that was really, really cool of him. And then prior to that, he did an appearance for me at UPW when he was on top of the world. And that was cool. That was really, UPW days were, were a lot of fun. I had, uh, remember, at that show, did appearances by Sting when he was the WCW champion. Ivory was a WWF women's champion. And Rob Van Dam was the ECW champion. And all three of them sitting side by side. And those days when the promotions just didn't mix. So got to do a lot of cool shit like that, too. Very, very cool. Now, did Warrior ever give you that twelve thousand eight hundred dollars? <laughs> no, no. Um, I only saw I only saw Jim once after he became successful, and I was at Gold's Gym in Venice Beach. I was with some of my boys. We walked in, and he was in there working out. 
Now, in my mind, he had absolutely burned me. And these, these are the days before I saw things like what my part was in it. And so at that time, I had a chip on my shoulder about what I thought he had done. Nonetheless, in, in a moment of clarity or brevity or whichever, I decided, let bygones be bygones. I'm going to go up and say hello and, you know, bury that. The hatchet I thought was, was buried and or should be buried. And I went up to him. He was doing uh, barbell curls. And I go, hey, Jim. And he looks down at me. You know, I'm five four, warrior six five. He looks down at me with the barbell in his hands, and he—I kid you not, John—he started vibrating like he was doing a Ultimate Warrior uh, promo. And <laughs> he turned like 15 shades of red and purple before my eyes. Um, you know, that—that—that's that, his vitamins at work. You could see that happen whenever he get mad. It was kind of funny. Um, and he started cutting a promo. And he, and it was the part of it I remember is this, and I swear to you, God, I'm not making this shit up. He goes, you have the FBI chasing me. You have the government surveilling me. And I'm standing there thinking, what? <laughs> what the hell is this? And he goes, I should take this barbell and jam it right up your ass. Now, I've been in a lot of fights before, and when I get it, and I'm not going to try to come off as a tough guy, but there's there's a story here. When I get in fights, everything slows down for me, and I'm able to think things through really clearly. So I thought the following through. I'm like, A, Jim's a flipping giant, but he's got two left feet. He probably couldn't fight his way out of a paper bag. But still, he's 6'5", he's 285, he's throwing bodies around for a living, I'm 5'4", 135, maybe I could take the probably not, um, but I've got all my boys with me, so something really started to go down, I'm covered, but if I kicked his ass, it would be the most embarrassing thing of all time for him, right in the middle of Gold's Gym, so I'm like, okay, that was my thought process, so I took a step toward him and looked up at him and put my chin literally like on his stonum and said, Jim, put up barbells and asses. Whatever you do in your spare time for your own personal enjoyment is between you and you and maybe the other boys. I said, <laughs> I said but if you want to take a shot, let's do it, motherfucker. I'll kick your ass right here in the middle of Gold's Gym. And he took a couple steps back, started shaking more, slammed the barbell down, turned around, and stormed out the back door of Gold's Gym. And that's the last time I ever saw him. Damn. And, uh, you never there got were that a lot much. of guys there that day that, that will remember that that thought it was pretty darn funny. So you never got that twelve thousand eight hundred dollars from the Warriors, damn. No, no, Sting. Well, that was, again, jointly, separately. That was a total debt, and still, Sting, Sting paid off the debt for everybody, not only right. myself, but for Warrior and the other two guys as well. Oh, right, right, because it's all combined. Oh, so yeah, That's so what a stand-up guy. Wow. Okay. Yeah, yeah, he definitely stood up big time. So Warrior technically owed Sting money, technically. Well, yeah, I don't think Sting's sweating his three grand these days, especially since our pal's six feet under anyways. I don't think yeah, that's happening. Yeah, but, yeah uh, definitely, definitely not. Right. That's okay. Oh, man. All right, how's that for your Sting and Warrior tale for the day? I love it. So kind of moving along to UPW, though. So how did you – I mean, you kind of t- touched on it a little bit, but how do you actually get that big – you know, it's a big undertaking. How do you kind of get that started? It was crazy. So I've, I've always been good at starting things. That's definitely one of my talents, to create, getting a concept and having the ability to execute it. Not always successfully, but I do understand how to get things going. And this was about 98. Uh, UFC was kind of sort of taken off. 
and I got together with these two other guys, Sean McCauley, who started LA Boxing, which became a very famous nationwide train. A guy named Craig Radgel, and we opened what was probably the first ever true MMA gym in the state of California. It was called Extreme University in Mission Viejo, Orange County, California. And when we took, we were going to put the ring in, I'm like, hey, I'd like to spend an extra couple grand and build a hybrid ring. Hybrid meaning that we spring load to the center, and then had a mechanism built where you could lock the spring. That way, when it's locked, you have a boxing or a grappling ring. When it's unlocked, you've got gives, so you've got a bump ring. So put that in the corner, and decide. I decided I was going to start a pro wrestling school. So I looked around, found an instructor, um, put out whatever notices you could in those days, and had a, uh, a wrestling school going in pretty short order. And one of my first two students was Todd Kennelly, who went on to become a TNA announcer, of all things, and then uh, my next uh, students after that were three guys, uh, Stefan Gamble and Russ McCullough and Sylvester Turkai, who all ended up eventually signing with WWF. Um, so we, we started training. At that time, I was getting into management for mixed martial arts, and I signed Mark Coleman and Mark Kerr, where they were the two top heavyweights in the world. Then signed Kimo Leopoldo from Rokimo. He's a guy that gave Hoist Gracie nightmares initially. And mm-hmm. had this yep. really colorful group of giants just walking through the doors, one after the other. Um, I've got photos of this. Like that first training class, the physicality would just absolutely blow your freaking mind. And one day, Justin McCauley, who later went on to become a UFC heavyweight, says to me, hey, boss, he goes, why don't we put on a show? I'm like, oh, that's a good idea. So put on a show in this ring in the corner of our gym um, I, I have the flyer for it, so I'll send it to you, John. I think you'll get a kick out of it. Awesome. Um, decided to call it Ultimate Pro Wrestling, so I was a big fan of the Ultimate Fighting Championships. Charged $5 to get in, and we sold out, which was like, I think, 280 people. And I remember going home that night, lying in bed with my wife, Gabrielle, and talking with her, and I just like could not believe how excited I was. You know, not because we did a $1,400 door or whatever it was, and we barely made any money if we did. It was just more the idea I could feel like something was starting. And, you know, within three years, UPW was a WWF development territory. Um, I had signed probably my first 15 guys and girls to, to the company at the time. We were putting on shows in really, really cool concert nightclubs, selling them out left and right. Um, taking them all for DVD and VHS. We had our DVDs in Walmart, Target, Kmart. And this when wrestling was really hit in the media. And, you know, I've always been entertainment uh, industry savvy. So we were being featured on you know, INLA, Entertainment Tonight, Access Hollywood, all that good stuff. And as an adjunct to that, we started booking tons of guys in the movie, TV, and commercial parts. So there were, there were a ton of moving parts to this. We started doing sold shows at casinos. We got our own bus. We were traveling around just having a blast, man. It was a crazy, crazy time. How did you make the connection with the WWF? Because you said it was basically the first really developmental system or the developmental territory that they had. So how does that connection get made? Well, what happened is... Um, I, I can't take credit for that. I got a cold call one day from Bruce Pritchard, and Bruce said, hey, we've been kind of following you guys and hearing good things about you. We hear you're organized. He goes, we are creating a new television program called SmackDown. You ready for this? This is something very few people know. He goes, it's going to be an all-women's program, 
and we know you're good at putting stuff together, so we are wondering if we can hire you for the weekend, come out there, and have you gather up as many interesting women as you possibly can to put them in front of us. And I think they paid me like three grand or something like that, and I said, sure, absolutely. So ended up, I mean, you wouldn't believe the group we got together for that weekend. Um, it was Amer- female American gladiators, the top female martial artists in the world, um, female bodybuilders, female... It was, it was a freak show. And I, and then when they came in, not only were the girls there, I had created formatted resumes for every girl, formatted promo photos. I mean, and oh, and it was Bruce and, and Jim Ross that came in together. And they were incredibly impressed. Now, there was one other thing I did that day. Three guys I told you about previously, Stefan Gamlin and Russ McCullough, who you probably never heard of. Um, Stefan is, this is legit. This is not wrestling exaggerations. Stefan is 6'7", 340. Russ was 7'3", 380. And then Sylvester Turkai. Now, you probably know Sylvester. I think we've talked about that before. Yes. Yep. All right. And Sylvester, who was 6'6", 300, but really, really looked the part. Well, all three of them did. Well, I told Russ and Sylvester and Stefan, I want you guys to walk through the door at X time. So this was, you know, this was planned. And we're in the midst of the audition, and Russ and Sylvester and Stefan walking together in JR's mouth about hit the floor, or his chin, whatever you say. And he's like, what the hell is this? And oh, these are just like three of my trainees. They're like, holy shit, did you guys bring your gear by chance? And they're like, why, yes, we did bring our gear, because <laughs> we, we had planned all this. Um, <laughs> of course. Yeah, they, they got in the ring. They um, they uh, auditioned, whatever you want to call it, and they're like, oh, my God, we want you guys. And then they say to me, they being Bruce and uh, JR, well, Rick, you have more? What else you got? I go, oh, yeah, yeah, I've got, like, another 20 guys like this. I go, and it's crazy, man, because Paul Heyman from ECW is calling about them, and Eric Bischoff from WCW is calling about them. So you can see where this is going, obviously. And... They said, oh, no, we, we want for a shot. So we made a deal. It became a development territory for them. Wow, so you were a hot property. All three of the biggies wanted to get involved with UPW at that point. Yeah, yeah, and that was legit. I, I was not working Bruce and JR. That, that was happening, yes. As a matter of fact, um, even while I was under development to, or not I, well, we were under development to WWF, WCW, it's little remembered, did a deal for a while where they were bringing in a lot of the top UFC fighters for, for, for short shots. And I was actually booking all of that stuff, but I did it with WWF's blessing. So I was always in touch with all of them. Um, ECW came and did a show at the Olympic Auditorium, and I remember going to the show. <laughs> the XPW guys showed up, Rob Black and his boys. Do you remember XPW? Yeah. Yep. Rob Nakari, Rob Black, yep. Okay. Rob Black. They got in a fight and they all got thrown they got the crap beat out of them and thrown out the back door. And me and my guys were just like welcomed with open arms. It was really cool. So I I've always tried to you know, even though there are plenty of people out there that will probably talk shit about me or have their bad things to say, I, I always did my best to be friends with everybody. Pretty damn cool though, if you think about UPW and you said hey, the DVDs are all, all over the place. All three big organizations were interested in the UPW was on top of the world. And you mentioned guys that came out of there, the you know, Christopher Daniels of the world, 
Samoa Joe, The Miz, John Cena, Victoria. I mean, some pretty big-time names coming out of that world and some pretty big names. You ever, like, look at some of those guys and just look back like, man, you know, we created a lot of freaking talent. Just, you know, kind of pat yourself on the back a little bit because that's a pretty good accomplishment, just even if you get one good guy kind of getting out of there. But you guys had a ton. Well, I mean, I don't – yeah, I, I don't really pat myself on the back too much. I, I can tell you this. Um, there were plenty of good guys around the country that were WWF worthy at that time that never got seen. Um, it's a very, very different world now. The development system has changed, changed 180 degrees, meaning that if you've got the goods, it's pretty easy to be seen now. You know, it's a legit corporate machinery that will welcome you welcome anybody, not not to sign them, but to take a look at them, give them a tryout if they have any kind of potential whatsoever. Back then, it was really, really hard, almost impossible to get seen. And back then, a development deal was a huge fucking deal. I mean, now I don't want to say they're like giving out like, you know, like underwear these days, but they're they're not horribly hard to come by. Um, the if I, was, if I was to give myself any accolades or pats on the back at all, it would be because I was able to develop a really good, really organized system that caught the attention of WWF and others like New Japan and Zero One, who we had associations with as well, where we could get guys and girls seen and get them hired because of the platform that we built. That's all. It's not that I had a great eye for talent. You know, it's like, you know, John Cena walked through the door. You, you'd have to be blind, deaf, and dumb not to look at him and go, wow, that's something special right there. In terms of looks, not, not a human being in terms of looks. Um, the Miz, on the other hand, one of the greatest freaking guys I've ever known. I saw nothing in him at first, nothing. Uh, Joey Ryan, if you told me Joey Ryan would be a star all these years later, I would have said, yeah, right, sure. And this is no disrespect meant to the Miz or Joey. They're both great guys who have worked their freaking asses off to get what they have now, and they absolutely deserve it, and I'm very, very happy for them. But I can't take any credit for that. Um, Paul London with, Paul London and Spanky, Brian Kendrick, they relocated themselves from Texas on their own dime to UPW because they knew they could get seen through us. And Paul London, God bless him, I did not give him the time of day. I just didn't see it. And I feel horrible about that now because he's truly one of my favorite human beings, not in the business only, but, but on this planet. And, and so talented, but I didn't see it. So really, how much how much credit can I give myself? I was always known as a big guy, Mark. You know, Nathan Jones, John Heidenreich, Luther Reigns, those guys. Th- those are the ones, for better or for worse, and they're all great guys. But those are the ones that I that I put my attention on. And uh, you know, as far as numbers go, by the way, you mentioned guys like Chris Daniels, Samoa Joe, uh, Mike Bucci, Simon Dean Nova. He came through us after his career was about over. Uh, Ivory, same thing. We were able to resurrect these people and get them to the, to the next place, but they all had previous training. Um, as far so I can't, you know, I can't take complete responsibility for that. But of guys and girls that we started from ground zero who had never been in a ring before, we actually signed 43 guys and girls to WWF and WWE. So that's a pretty big number. Huge, huge. Doesn't include the Chris Daniels, Samoa Joe's, Frankie Kazarian's, Nova's, Ivory's, all that. These are brand new people. So that that's a number that will probably never be equaled again. But as, as I like to say, you know, that and four bucks will get you a latte at Starbucks. So it, <laughs> it, it all is what it is, you know. 
Now, you mentioned relationships with New Japan and Zero One. I think the most impressive thing, possibly, I don't know, could be wrong, maybe I'm a supermark, but you wrestled a main event against Shinya Hashimoto at Cork and Hall. That's got to be a huge, huge career statement or a career mark, no? Yeah, yes and no. And and I'll tell you the no of it in a minute. It's a little embarrassing, but, you know, you've been on my – you've been producing my podcast. You know I don't mind embarrassing myself. Um mm-hmm. That whole thing was a very trippy story. Um, do we have a few minutes left yet? And I'll tell you the story. Uh, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. What had happened is, again, we got a cold outreach. Uh, I think it was through Simon Inoki saying, hey, there's a new company starting in Japan. They're looking for U.S. talent. They've heard about you guys. I'd like to bring them by. So I said, great. And I did what I always do in a case like that. I made sure the showcase was really set up properly. We loaded our guns big that day. And Hashimoto came out with um, – who was it? Hoshikawa, I think, one of his workers, and also uh, Nakamura, his head office guy. And, you know, we rolled out the red carpet and put the talent in front of them. And they were a barrier to the entire U.S. to look for uh, American talent. And after that day, they said, oh, we don't have to go anywhere else. We'll get all our guys for you. So right away, we had this amazing association. And I think over the years with Zero One, I think I sent about 70 guys, 70 guys there. It was a crazy, crazy number. Um, some of them became very big stars there. Sylvester Trinkai being one who I've mentioned before, Nathan Jones, um, Samoa Joe as uh, King Joe, they called him. A great guy, Televis Masala Solo as King Adamo. He was amazing. He should have been a big WWF star. Uh, Tom Howard, my best friend in the business, became a big star in Japan through Zero One. So in any case... What happened was we, we really imprinted UPW in Japan. And it was fun, man. You know, I was getting to, to travel there, and we were making some money. We were having a great time. It was checking something real quickly. Ah, oh, that is awesome. That's my date for tonight calling me on the other line. I guess I'm going to have to let that go. All right. Um, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to be distracted for a second and text her, but I'll keep telling the story at the same time. Um, what happened was... We we were doing really well over there. UPW was getting a ton of coverage, um, but I got a little greedy. Could you believe that? The Jewish wrestling promoter got a little greedy. And what I mean by that was we weren't making that much money and probably not near what we should have for, for the amount of presence we had. But it wasn't that we asked Zero One for more money. It was just it was the following. Zero One had an association with Pride, and Pride fighting was huge over there. And Tom and Sylvester and Nathan Jones and Sean O'Hare all wanted to fight and make the real money over there. So I started bugging Hashimoto and Nakamura to get the guys booked at Pride. And, and John, I stayed on them and on them and on them to do that. But it just like fell on deaf ears. In the meantime, I got a call from K1 looking for a, a giant white guy to fight Bob Sapp. And I booked Stefan Gamblin, the guy I told you about before, who got signed by WWF previously, to fight Bob Sapp. And I formed a relationship with K1 in the process. Well, I went to Zero One over and over and said, hey, Tom and Nathan and Sylvester and Sean really appreciate everything you're doing for them, everything that's happening here for them. But they'd like to go fight and make some money. Because in the meantime, K1 has offered them an opportunity. Please let us fight. And they ignored it. So I made a deal for those guys at K1, and the shit hit the fan, man. 
Islam. I didn't understand the politics there. I didn't understand that that was disloyal because we brought Zoran's wrestlers to the opposing fight organization. So the boys went there, made a ton of money there. We negotiated crazy deals for them. Um, I'm sorry, John. I'm going to take a break for 10 seconds. Is that okay? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know this is really rude, um, but I've got to do this. I'm sending a very, very quick text. Um, I love it. I'm going to get my voice back, too. You can probably hear my voice is just shot. I love it. So you got an interview with us. And then later on, you got a date. That's a pretty I, nice yes. thing. <laughs> I hope so. Um, in any case, yeah, brand new, brand new girl. I'm pretty excited about it. Play like, uh, like a kid, which is nice. Forgot that feeling existed. It's pretty awesome. Um, really, really sweet lady too. So in any case, back back to the wrestling world. Um, so we we did great deals for these guys. They went, fought over there, had had some success, had a good time. Got to go stay in the first class hotels, and it was really cool. Well. Hashimoto was not happy, put it that way. Um, and they came saved us for like three, four months. Not a word. All our bookings went away. I'm like, oh man, I was I fucked that one up. Um, but we were making more on the three or four guys fighting than everybody else combined wrestling. But it really wasn't the point. I mean, it was a bummer to have lost that connection. But then I get a communicator from from Nakamura saying, yes, we want you guys back. We have an idea. We would like you to bring six guys that have never been here before, and we're going to do a special tour, zero one versus UPW. Like, okay. And we're like, yes, and we're going to keep points, even if it's all worked. You know, if they work matches with worked results. He goes, but we're going to keep a tally, and then after each show, we'll show how much each team has, and the idea will be we'll have a tie going into the final night, and then we'll have the final match for a million-dollar prize. Well, you know, million dollars is a work also, of course, but that was a gimmick, and it was called the Zero One versus UPW Cash Honor uh, Cash Honor Tour. So we get over there, and I brought six guys. It was really cool. They're all like kids in a candy store. They're wide-eyed and bushy-tailed. They've never been to Japan. Well, I realized about halfway through, they wanted me to bring six guys that were green to the way of business there, so we wouldn't clue in to what was happening, and. We, um, you know, dur- during the tour, they come up to me and they go, okay, we're not only going to go over the final night with a tie, we're going to go to the final match with a tie. And the final match is going to be you against Nakamura for the million-dollar prize. I'm like, cool. You know, not Yushiyuki Nakamura, we're still in touch these days. We got back in touch after years. Um, you know, he's a business guy. You know, he's 5'8", 165 pounds. Pretty sure, unless he knows something I don't know about, that I handle him pretty easily if something went down. Um, so I'm like, this is great. Um, like, hey, uh, Mr. Nakamura, do you want to work on that show? I'm asking him every night. Oh, no, 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 we wait, we wait. Like, okay. I figured maybe we're doing a work shoot and not have to put too much work into it, which would be good since neither of us are workers anyway, so you got almost have to shoot to make it look okay. Um, so the night be- after five shows, I think it was, the night before the final show, we got taken out to a sponsor's dinner in the middle of nowhere. This amazing place looked like a, a three-story pagoda in the middle of nowhere. Everybody got all liquored up like usual, having a great time. They've got all female hostesses around. I mean, it's that lifestyle that you just you know you dream of when you're a kid and rarely get to live. And a couple of the sponsors are sitting with me, and it's like three in the morning. I'm socked to the gills, 
And like, so, like, are you afraid about your match tomorrow? And I'm like, no. <laughs> Why would I be afraid? They go, well, we would be afraid. I'm like, afraid of Nakamura? And then they, they, like, there's just silence. And the two guys look at each other. They look at me. They go, Nakamura? They go, no, you're fighting Hashimoto. <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> I'm like, what? Oh, yeah. Yeah, Bassman Hashimoto. I'm like, no, Nakamura. Then they show me something in the newspaper. No, you Hashimoto. I'm like, oh. <laughs> so the next day, we're at Corican, you know, the revered, legendary Corican Hall. And I go up to Hashimoto. Um, I go to where, where he, his office. And I go, hey, I want to see if Hash- Mr. Hashimoto would like to work the match out. Otani and Tanaka are like, nope, 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 nope. I'm like, oh, fuck. He's going to kill me. <laughs> now I see what this all is, right? And, you know, the the match itself was short-lived. We ended up doing this big schmoz. Um, I have to tell you that I, you know, and I, I'm a pretty tough guy. I've had a lot of fights, a lot. Um, but I've seen Hash, Hashimoto's probably 280, 300 pounds at the end, and again, on 135, 140. And I've seen him leg kick guys before where if he had hit me with that at my size, he probably would have broke my leg in half. And I just, <laughs> I pushed out, man. Um, I, I wish I had adopted the Roddy Piper style when Roddy used to get, go against Andre. And Roddy would tell me, he was a very good friend, and he'd say, man, Rick, he goes, I loved Andre. He goes, some nights, so you could have talked to him. You didn't know what to expect. And he goes, I just figured I'd throw a caution to the wind and go as hard as I could and let the chips fall with him, eh? And, and to this day, John, I wish I had worked the match in that style. But um, nonetheless, I, I, I have the pictures. I'm looking at one right now, actually, of me. I, I had UPW Mutai uh, shorts made just for this. And uh, I have a picture of me, like, squared up against Hashimoto in the ring at Cork and all. So I got the memory, uh, but I could have I could have had a better performance, that's for sure. Yeah, damn. It's kind of, a, I guess, a little bit of a regrettable moment, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, absolutely it is. I would have liked to have left it out there like Roddy did with Andre. But then again, I, I was once on a plane coming back from a K-1 show with Mighty Mo, if you remember him. Oh, and, yes, yes. Yeah, Mo was a friend in Chad Bannon. Chad, a big, giant, jacked-up, good-looking guy who should have been a big star. He got his, he got his leg kicked so badly. The Chad is like 6'5", 275. Um, his leg blew up so big on the plane because of the pressure that people on the plane thought he was going to die. And, and I had that dancing in my head when I was getting ready to go with Hashimoto. So I regret it that I didn't go for it. But at the same time, who knows what would have happened? I have no idea. Now you mentioned K1 and their enemy pride fighting championship pride, which if people don't know is the biggest MMA organization probably ever just Crowd-wise, and you know uh, how yeah. big it was, and and had, they, they really had the best fighters ever were in pride at, 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 at that point. At a, at a certain point in time, at a particular point in time, yes, absolutely. So, this is a great story from you. You used to be the corner man when, and you made the deal for Mark uh, Mark Coleman to get into Pride, correct? I did. Yeah. Mark so Coleman, he... Mark Kerr, Tank Abbott, Butterbean, Don Fry, Dan Severin. Man, the list goes on and on. All, not all, but most of the classics, yeah. Man, they had such a friggin' talent roster. It was just unbelievable at that point. Those guys plus a million others. But it's just awesome, this story, though. 
your corner man for Mark. I mean, obviously you got all those guys in there, which is awesome. But Mark Coleman, and he's fighting Takata. So oh, how the I hell, know where, yeah, okay. Yeah, so yep. how the hell does that all go down? Because you're there, you set it up. You, you know, you're living it. Kind of take us through that, because that is such a great story. And we had on Mark Coleman probably about a year ago, so he told us the you know the whole story as well. Oh, did he? But, okay, okay. But yeah, not I, from I, your Mark perspective. Still doesn't love to tell that story. So. No, no, no. He he actually told me. Uh, afterwards, he's like, "Do you want to keep that in?" I was like, "Yeah." He goes, "Really?" I'm like, "Yeah." I'm like, "Everyone knows, it was, you know, it was a work, or whatever." So he was like hesitant about it, but he he told a good story. But not from your perspective. He obviously has a completely different perspective from it. Well, what happened was Mark had a couple of bad losses at UFC, and he had a had a blow up with the management there. And right after the blow up was when he and I got together in our in our client and manager relationship. And the first thing we did, or I did, was reach back out to UFC to try to, try to make a new deal. And they offered a three-fight deal, and it was not a good one by, by any estimation. And, and one thing I've always done as, as a manager, agent, representative, whatever you want to call it, is to understand the realities of what you're dealing with and go for the very, very best deal possible for your client, but also one that the buyer is going to be happy with because you don't, you don't want to push people off or just rub people the wrong way by being outlandish. Um, so that, that said, you, 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 know, you want to strike the right balance, but we couldn't strike a balance that, in my estimation, and Mark agreed, was anywhere fair to Mark. So we said, no, we don't want a three-fight deal. How about if we come in and do one fight, we'll see how it goes, and we'll take it from there. Great. Booked a fight with Pedro Rizzo, who was uh, you know, at the top of his game at the point. And yes. Pedro ended up winning a decision. And it was arguably not a good decision, but not, no. not, not enough where you protest it. Um, but we're like, okay, well, that's it. There's nowhere to go from there. So I reached out to Pride. And they said, yes, of course, we're interested in Mark Coleman. Absolutely. Um, and then they said, but we have an idea before we really get him started here. So Pride at that time was really doing the best they could to get Takata over as a legitimate guy. And their thoughts were, let's bring over the former UFC heavyweight champion, the first ever UFC heavyweight champion, uh, and let's have him lose to Takata. That will really put Takata over. Because back in those days, they were still doing a lot of works in Japan, even in the street organizations. So we started talking about that, and Mark's like, oh, he all told me Bass. Hey, Bass, oh, I don't know. You know Mark's voice, oh, I don't know, mm-hmm. man. But he goes, but he was, Mark was out of money. He, they weren't making much money in those days. Even the UFC heavyweight champion wasn't making much. He goes, but if the money is right, I'm like, okay, well, let me get started on that. So we get started. We're doing some back and forth. And then uh, Yukino Honda, who was with a talent broker for Pride, she goes, you guys are in San Clemente, right? That's where Mark Coleman, Mark Kerr, myself, and Tom Howard were all living together at the time, which was a whole story for another day. Oh, my God, that was fucking nuts. <laughs> um, but um, they said, oh, we're driving past because we have to go to San Diego. Can we take you and Mark to dinner? And I said, oh, shoot, I can't. I mean, I, had, I don't know where it was now, but I know I had obligations that night that I just could not get out of. Um, Maybe I chose my wife for once, which I probably should have chosen first. Maybe that was the case that night. I'm not sure. I don't remember. Um, but in any case, they said, well, can we go just with Mark? And I said, yes, Yukino, that's fine, but I'm going to ask you this. Do not discuss business. That wouldn't be cool. She's like, of course. And I told Mark the same thing. Don't discuss business. 
He's like, yep, okay, yeah, you handle that for me. That's no problem. So they go out to dinner. Mark calls me a couple hours later. He goes, Bass, you won't believe this. They offered me $300,000 to fight Dakota. <laughs> like, okay, I'm thinking, A, you're not supposed to talk business. B, if you got offered 300 that's amazing because that commission is more than I would have expected for the whole fight. Um, and C, you're out of your mind. You heard something wrong. You go, Mark, there's no way. Because at that time, the, that kind of money was not available for a single fight, no matter what they were trying to accomplish. This is just, just a different era. And I got on the phone with Yukino and said, so, and I almost said it half jokingly, I hear you offered Mark $300,000. And she goes, no, we offered him $30,000. <laughs> I don't know if you've ever dealt with Japan at all, John, but they oftentimes, the, the, the commas are in a different place when they do numbers. So right, yes. I kind of figured that's what happened. And I go back to Mark, I go, Mark, I go, he, I go, Mark, I got something to tell you. He goes, even before I told him, he goes, I was wrong about the 300, right? I go, yeah. He goes, it's probably 30, right? I go, yep. He goes, oh, man. So I go, I have an idea. I go, let me call you back. I go, I call you Kino. And I go, you Kino, Mark wants to do this. He's happy to want, I mean, I said this, he's happy to put Takata over. Um, I go, but he got so excited. He thought you were offering him $300,000. Um, we got to do something better than 30 at this point. So I actually ended up getting him 60,000 for the, for the quote unquote fight. Um, which is actually not a bad deal. If you think about it, it's not a fight. It's a glorified pro wrestling match. It's an easy payday. He did not even train for it. Um, so that, that's one of those good instances we were talking about for before where I earned my 10%. Um, so in any case, we went over to Japan, Mark, you know, got happy with the idea of 60 and, uh, we get over there and we're doing the match and not we, I'm sorry, I'm in the corner. Mark is doing the match. And at that point, Mark had no training in pro wrestling or work style at all. And Mark actually became a very good pro wrestler. I don't know if you know that or not. He, yeah. he was yeah. Really, oh, yeah. really talented. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, really talented at it. But at that point he had zero training. So he's letting Takata get some kicks in and, and you can see it. It's not very convincing he didn't really know how to work a match. And there's an art to it. There's an absolute art to it. And he then moves in on Takata, gets him in a neck crank. And I'm standing in the corner going, oh, my God, he's going to submit him. Takata's <laughs> going to tap out. So I, I, I might be the only corner man in history shouting or screaming instructions at their fighter how to lose a fight. Um I was I was afraid he was going to tap him, and we're going to have to deal with the infamous Pride uh, Yakuza after that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Oh shit. Yeah. Yeah. So I was I had I had visions of, of a lot more than little fingers missing at that point. Um, but uh, you know, he finished the match, put Takata over, collected his sixty thousand, less my six grand, of course, and uh, that was that. I love it though that he really like got caught up in it and almost like really submitted the guy for real. Like Mark, no, John, I know for sure. He was going to submit him like going, Oh my God, don't do this. This is really bad, man. Don't do it. Oh yeah. That was a good one. Did you ever go back and listen to the announcers? I don't remember if it was Mauro or Quadros, but I know uh, it was Boss Rudin and they were saying like, Oh, that's the dumbest thing. Oh, he had him. What is he doing? And then, you know, obviously you got to get <laughs> no, him in a You know what? I, I haven't. Um, I've heard about this and I keep meaning to go back and listen. Um, boss actually told me about it. But I, I was uh, a couple of years later, I was uh, one of the groomsmen in boss's wedding. So we became very close 
and he's like, I remember him telling me, too, oh, my God, Rick, we're calling that match. We had no idea what was, what was going on. We did a um, – Butterbean and I did a show together in Jasper, Alabama, at the Armory there. It, it looked like the um, the horse place from that movie Borat. I mean, there was literally manure on the floors. We're in Backwoods, Alabama. And there were 22 fights on this freaking show, John. I kid you not. And the main event was Tom Howard versus Butterbean. And at the end of the uh, match, we, we flew in Herb Dean to referee. At the end of the match, Herb comes up to me and goes, Rick, was that a work? And I'm like, well, I don't know, Herb. You tell me. So you got to figure, man, if you can full Herb Dean and almost full Boss Rutten a little bit, I guess you're doing okay. Yes, yes. Oh, my God, yes. Great stuff. So as we hit the wind down and head towards the finish, I just got to ask you this because you've been, you know, all over the place and people have a lot of ideas of who Rick Bassman is or who he was and all sorts of stuff. What's the biggest misconception about you? Oh, man. Well, that sounds like a talking tough kind of question, John. Yeah, yeah. That's right. You're not going to ask me what my favorite of my five matches was? Oh, man, that's cool. I'm messing with you, obviously. That'll, that's going to be next. It's actually on my sheet here. That'll be next. My fa- my favorite match ever was when I fought Pete Doyle for control of UPW at our fifth anniversary show that also featured Hall and Nash in their first match back after WCW, Superfly Snooker, Ivory, Jerry Lynn, Ken Shamrock, and a bunch of others. I've got that poster still. That was my favorite match. Not that, that you know, awesome. I just that is so. awesome. It that was really awesome. cool. I, I I loved it. It was amazing. It was the only halfway decent match I ever worked because I suck as a worker. But anyway, um, uh, misconception. You know, I would say you know, for I, I would love guys that do what you do to ask people like, who do I want to think of? Jeff Hardy. I mentioned Nova before. Paul London, who I told you they give the time of day to. Chris Masters. Um, I would say ask those guys that question. Because, and the reason I say that, and there's a bunch of others I could, I could add to the list. Um, Dallas Page is, is a great one for that. He's also very credible. Everyone looks at Page with a lot of, with a lot of credibility. Um, the the ones on the other side, you know, the Jim the JCs, the Jim Cornets, the John Cena's, uh, Bubba Bubba Ray Dudley is another. They would say that I'm a promoter who looked to make money. And you asked the question earlier in this interview to make money off the boys. But you know what? I, I'd say this: you're in business. You invest your time, your money, your heart, your soul. You deserve to get paid. Um, but first and foremost, I, I've always enjoyed watching other people do well and other people be happy. It's the very opposite of trying to take advantage of or get anything off of anybody. And for those who think that that was my motivation to, to, to get stuff off people, that would be the biggest misconception. So what's kind of your biggest regret? Could it possibly be the Hashimoto zero one thing? Like oh, what, what do you say is biggest regret? I don't know, man, but it definitely wouldn't be that. Um, I, I would – I've got to think about that. Um, let, let, let me think about that for a second. But in the meantime, to, to go to the opposite side, may, may I tell you what I think might be my favorite story ever in pro wrestling? Hell, yeah. Let's the one that it. made me feel I actually, like, 
did something, I mean, there were a lot where I felt I did stuff for people, but this is the, the one that really stands out more than anything. And it, it won't mean much to you or anybody else at first because you won't have heard of this guy. His name is Nate Nickerson. Um, he went by Little Nate in UPW. And when I say little, Nate came in at four foot, ten inches tall, and like 95 pounds. And I remember being at our training center one day, which you had to know where you were going to get there. You couldn't drive by it. It was a real destination. And this really nice Mercedes drives up. Like, that's unusual for this neighborhood. And we see, like, what looks like a conservative-looking lady driving, and that's it. But then the passenger passenger door pops open. Well, this kid gets out that was so small, we didn't even see him over the dashboard. And Mom Shelley brings in son Nate and goes, he would like to be a pro wrestler. And I'm like, no chance. Because, and this I think is indicative of the way I ran my business back then, a lot of schools will sign up any, just like you go, these girls go to Barbara's on modeling. And if the girl is, you know, four foot ten and 300 pounds, but she's got her thousand bucks, they'll say, well, you can be a model. And I, I was always very opposite. I'm like, you know, here's where I believe your legitimate chances are, if any. Um, you know, if you want to still sign up, knowing that that's your, your chances, which in some cases are, are, you know, slim to none, then by all means, as long as you're fit enough to do it. Well, this guy was just, he was way too small. And I told him that, I told his mom that, and, and this was a successful lady. She goes, look, he's a good athlete in school. We know what we're dealing with here. If you guys will look out for him, do the best you can, we'll sign any liability release. He'd really, really just like to be part of it. Okay, cool. So we signed the kid up. And, John, I swear to God, two years later, this little kid with his short hair with, like, no personality, two years later, he had sprouted to about four eleven and a half. He grew this giant afro and was one of the most charismatic characters we ever had at UPW. And I worked my – this is back when um, WWF used to let me book all the dark matches for Southern California and Central California. They don't – not only let me book the matches, they – I could put the overs, I could put the referees, I could put the managers in it. I had a lot of latitude back in those days. And I pushed and pushed and pushed and pushed to get Nate a dark match. And they finally relented and said, okay. So this guy comes out, he's not even five foot, and he popped the fucking crowd like you wouldn't believe. Now, this is 2002 or three, whatever it was, so they, just, they weren't going to give the guy a look. It, just, it was a different world back then. I thought if they had signed him, he would have been, you know, he would have been Spike Dudley on steroids. He would have been 10 times bigger than Spike ever was, but they, they just couldn't see that at that time. So that, that was the pinnacle of Nate's career until we're at UPW one night and got a sold-out crowd which for at the Galaxy, our home theater, which was about 600 people. And I booked a match which was um, Little Nate against our UPW lightweight champion, Frankie Kazarian. And we had just gotten Frankie signed with WWF. So this was his farewell match. So the match was Frankie and Nate. Nate worshipped Frankie. Um, Frankie had really taken Nate under his wing just as I had. And we booked the match, you know, for you know a basic seven, eight-minute deal with Frankie over clean in the middle, after which we'd do a big send-off for Frankie. Well, I got together with Frankie and our referee, Marty, who was later Marty Valenza in WWF as a referee there. And we were the only three that were in on the finish, which was a reverse roll-up with Nate going over. So we finished the match. Nate, was, Nate didn't know he was winning the match. 
and you know, we and I, I remember calling his parents and you have to be sure you're at this show. So that was probably my favorite moment ever in wrestling was putting this kid over as a surprise for the title over Frankie on Frankie's Way Out. So that's my favorite. I can remember that one for sure. That's awesome. I do remember Little Nate. And I feel like really? in, Yeah, and I feel like in modern day wrestling people kind of forgot about him. But Marco Stunt, who's in AEW, is very much like Little Nate. You know, really, really short guy, really skinny, really small. But, like, you know, the the, the total underdog, the ultimate underdog. Just so I've small. heard the name and I've read about him. Is he, is he good? He's very athletic. Um, I don't know. It's hard to say because he doesn't really wrestle that much, and I haven't really seen much of him. But very athletic. There's a lot of crazy moves. But the crowd is into him. I mean, he's kind of okay. hot. With the crowd, yeah, it was really, really good. He was just before his time. That's all. Um, I think Stunt might be smaller than than Nate was, which is insane to think wow. or say. But wow. but, it, but it's more. It's a lot more accepted now, too, for sure. Yes. But now, anyway, did, so that 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 was a great moment for sure. Um, but most um, most embarrassing or most most regret. Oh man. Yeah, you know we did shows. We did two shows a week. I had, uh, ultimately had two training centers, one in L.A., one in Orange County. And we created a thing called the UPW Light, like L-I-T-E, like Miller Light. And there were practice shows. And at these shows, it was so fun. We'd have the announcer come out. There's no microphone. He would shout. Uh, I think we charged like $3 or $5 to get in, whatever. This was after UPW was very successful with higher tickets and doing really nice places. We had these gym shows. And nobody would know what the matches were until they got there. You know, nothing was advertised or promoted. And we would tell people right when they got there, here's who you're working. And by the way, you're not a face and not you're a heel. So the whole idea was teaching them to, to be able to react on the fly. And they were really, really fun. Um, uh, Miz was just, you know, starting to get pretty decent at that point with us. But he had developed what I mistakenly thought was like kind of an attitude. It was just Miz's personality, and I didn't quite recognize it for what it was. So I did something really, really old school, which I regret, which was teach him a lesson. And I was always very anti that. I never subscribed to the idea of you beat guys up to make them tough or indoctrinate them into the business. I thought that was bullshit. The business is hard enough as it is without having to put, put that on somebody. But booked him that night with Sylvester Turkai and had Sylvester just beat the crap out of him. And I regret that. Miz didn't deserve it. Um, so maybe, maybe that will answer that question. I uh, kind of uh, almost think in line with you, with Miz, just as far as I didn't think he'd be anything either. And, man, did he prove, I think, everyone wrong. And even the fact that he's on TV, USA Network, with his own show, showing his personality, the fact yep. that he's married to Maurice, who might be one of the you know, hottest women ever in the history of wrestling. And a very, he, very nice woman besides, a really nice person. I mean, he, he meant it, main event of WrestleMania. Uh, I mean, he, he shocked yep. the world with, with what he accomplished. And I'm happy for him because he deserves it. He's one of the good ones, man, for sure. So when you – hang it up, retire, whatever you want to say, you know, you're done, everything is done. Looking back, talking about music, the entertainment industry, your acting, your agencies, um, working for Disney, winning an Emmy, everything, wrestling, MMA. What's like the legacy, the stamp that you leave behind? What's Rick Bassman's legacy 
Oh, man. I don't have a prepared answer for that, but it comes to mind pretty easily. And it would be in, in two parts, I think. I have a, um, I have a nonprofit foundation I formed years ago called the Bully Dog Rescue Coalition, and it's based on uh, advocacy and rescue for pit bulls, which are incredibly near and dear to my heart. I have four of my own, but I'm also very actively involved in four sanctuaries across the country, which are all founded and run by uh, women, and we're doing an amazing job for it. So we're working our asses off to to change the image of pit bulls everywhere and keep uh, and raise enough money to keep these four women's sanctuaries alive and doing what they do. They, they serve, in my opinion, at least an incredibly important purpose. So if I, um, my, my ego's not tied up in it, but if I became eventually known as the guy that made the biggest difference ever for pit bulls in the U.S., I'd, I'd be happy, but I'm happy just with the way it is now. Um, the other is, so we've got this podcast, obviously we're doing together called Talking Tough, and if, um, you know, as you know, the, the whole the whole theme of it is just to, to be real, and you, you hear the same underlying theme in each, in each episode, which is, you know, let people know that, I don't want to say that it's okay to suffer, and it's okay to be in pain, it's not, um, but to let them know that their suffering and their pain is not uncommon, and that there's a way out of it, and if we can you know, help to spread that word through the podcast, through the, through the book that I'm promoting through the podcast, then uh, that would be an amazing thing. That's about it, man. Great, great stuff. And, of course, Talking Tough, the podcast will be out very, very soon. Awesome stuff coming from it, awesome interviews. But please give us, you know, all your plugs. I know, obviously, you got rickbassman.com. you got the book, the autobiography, Little Big Man. But give us all your plugs. Well, man, you covered it. That's it. I, I, well, I, two things. Okay. So March 15th, I don't know when we are this podcast. Today is what the – I obviously I know the time today. So what's the date? The 7th today? The 8th? The 10th. 9th? Nope. 10th. I should know that. I feel so that dumb right now. That retreat screwed you. That retreat screwed you all up. Oh, I'm so – I'm exhausted, man. I still haven't gotten straight from that retreat. Um, podcast debut is March 15th, so that's just five days from now. It's Talking Tough. Uh, we're on podcast one, the same folks that, um, that put forth Adam Carolla and Joe Rogan. So we're in a good spot there. We've got great producers and you and Chad and, and the two man power trip. And I'm really excited about the podcast and what we can do with that. So please look for talking tough, everybody. Uh, secondly, look for bully dog com. That's our pit bull advocacy, um, adventure there. So that's it, man. Those are my plugs. Nothing more. Awesome, awesome stuff from Mr. Rick Bassman. Of course, Talking Tough will be available very, very soon. Check it out on wherever you find and wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. It will be available. So, Rick, I appreciate all the time you gave tonight. Thank you so much. I'm really looking forward to Talking Tough. Oh, same here. I appreciate you guys. And the last word, please, uh, please send my love to Jim Cornette. And... Uh, Thank you and Chad and uh, Two Man Power Trip for everything. Much appreciated, John. Let me tell you something you already know. The world ain't all sunshine and rainbows. It's a very mean and nasty place, and I don't care how tough you are, it will beat you to your knees and keep you there permanently if you let it. You, me, or nobody is going to hit as hard as life. But it ain't about how hard you hit. It's about how hard you can get hit and keep moving forward. How much you can take and keep moving forward. That's how winning is done.
Now, if you know what you're worth, now go out and get what you're worth. But you got to be willing to take the hits and not pointing fingers saying you ain't where you want to be because of him or her or anybody. Cowards do that and that ain't you. You're better than that.